Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Today, we're speaking with author Joan Mellon, investigator Joan Mellon, who has prepared the most incredible, compelling book, A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's Assassination, and the Case That Should Have Changed History. This is the first interview with Joan for the release of her book. WBAI is very fortunate today to have Joan with us here in the studio. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 170, and it's a continuation of our miniseries that features Joan Mellon on the Taking Aim radio show. Today's episode is part two of a three-part series, and it continues the entire full-length interview conducted by Ralph Schoenman and Maya Schoen. We spent an extensive amount of time in part one giving you the background and context related to Ralph Schoenman, and so we won't repeat it here, but listeners should be sure that they have heard that background information contained in the prologue for episode 169 before they listen to today's episode. Ralph is much more engaged in today's conversation with Joan Mellon, and that's one of the reasons that listening to the background on him is so important. It's another exciting episode with much in the way of explosive statements, so listen carefully. It's an hour long, so I am not going to dilly-dally here in the prologue. Let's just get right back to it. Oh, and in the next episode, episode 171, or part three, we finish up coverage of the radio broadcast, and in that episode, Joan, Ralph, and Maya delve into the topic of why Robert Kennedy was so against the Garrison investigation. So stay with us today and keep listening. And don't miss that last part of this three-part wander. And that episode should be out tomorrow. And so, without further ado, let's listen to episode 170 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. here because we've been dwelling on some of the particulars and the particulars are of great significance not only because key witnesses come forward and Joan has unearthed the corroborating documents she's ferreted them out she's got them out of people who had been hoarding them and hiding them she solicited them and covered them from files that had not been labeled as such but let's put this in its larger context brothers and sisters Clay Shaw CIA Lee Harvey Oswald CIA David Ferry, CIA, Guy Bannister, CIA, Jack Ruby, FBI, and CIA. They're not just a team on their own. 
as Joan's book elucidates and as her documentation and her interviews and her time spent with the actual culprits makes clear, we're talking about the top echelons of the Central Intelligence Agency and of military intelligence. David Atlee Phillips, the head of station throughout Latin America. Richard Helm, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency himself. James Jesus Angleton, the head of counterintelligence and with the Defense Intelligence Agency. All of this emerges from this book irrefutably with overwhelming documentation. It's not just a vindication of Jim Garrison, but it's the documentation beyond any question of the treason at the top that the Kennedy execution represents. This is an extraordinary document. It's going to remain such for decades. I urge you to buy it for an extraordinary achievement, eight years in the making, that in my judgment is the most significant investigative work that I've come across. Uh, while we're so lucky to have Joan with us for the three hours today, we can only touch upon the incredible research, the remarkable detail, and there are almost a hundred pages of very tiny print of notes to accompany to let you know where exactly she got each piece of information, and every sentence is a new discovery in this book. And also the dates of her interviews, it is a remarkable scholarly work as well as an investigative tour de force. A farewell to justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's assassination, and the case that should have changed history, and we're telling you this is a work that will change history. Well, let's be very clear about this, brothers and sisters. The enshrining of a coup d'etat and the execution of the head of state and the installation of the heads of the intelligence agencies and the joint chiefs in the military services in effecting the murder of the president sets the stage for the criminalization of the state and all that has followed. The 9-11 false flag, the series of incidents from the catastrophe of Katrina to the false flag of 9-11 flows from the criminalization of the state and its capture, and this is the book that sets the documentation forth without any question. It is essential, it is essential that we make this information available, that we not just make it available, but that we emphasize its significance. The book itself draws all of its appropriate conclusions. Please, this is a document that you will read ten times and still discover new information in it. And all of the political implications are clearly drawn, without any hesitation, drawn from the evidence, drawn from the massive interviewing documentation and disclosure, revelationary disclosures, brothers and sisters, a farewell to justice. This is the, uh, the Jim Garrison JFK investigation and the case that should have changed history by Joan Mellon. It is a definitive work on the Kennedy execution of the hundreds of books that have appeared on this subject. Nothing even begins to approach the extraordinary revelations that come forward uh, in this book that leave no question remaining as to how Kennedy was killed and who did it and why. Keep the information coming, brothers and sisters. The struggles ahead will depend upon the kind of revelations that we're able to find and to make our own by acquiring A Farewell to Justice by Joan Mellon. I wanted to say something. Can I interrupt mine? Oh, of course. <laughs> I first of all want to thank WBAI for the opportunity to discuss this book in such a way without any hesitation for this length of time 
and to explore the ideas. I can't think of any other station in the country where this would be possible. And I didn't know that you call it free speech radio, but that's certainly what it is. And I'm extremely grateful for that. I think it's extremely rare, increasingly rare. And I can't applaud WBAI enough. I'd also like to mention that there are other aspects of the social history of the United States of the 1960s in this book, as well as the discussion of the assassination of President Kennedy. One of those is the civil rights movement and the efforts of CORE, especially, it turned out, in that little town of Clinton, Louisiana, in the summer of 1963, when Lee Harvey Oswald went up there with Clay Shaw and David Ferry. It turned out that Oswald stood online to register to vote in the middle of a core registration drive. And that was an extremely important registration drive because in East Feliciana Parish in Louisiana, I think they only had 10 African-American voters on the rolls during that time. Very, very, uh, you, you couldn't vote. And here's uh, the, the registrar of voters in East Feliciana Feliciana Parish had a, a doll with a noose around its neck on his door. And he also had in his office one of those anti-civil rights movement, I don't know what to call it, the vicious posters against Martin Luther King, in which it was Martin Luther King at the communist school in Tennessee. And one of the great efforts in the state of Louisiana to avoid integration was to suggest that the civil rights movement was infiltrated by communists. And this was, and there's the registrar of voters up there in East Feliciana Parish, Henry Earl Palmer, with that poster. And the same poster appeared in the barbershop of Leah McGee, where Lee Harvey Oswald went to have a haircut on that trip up there and uh, ultimately became his visit to the hospital to apply for a job. And Joan, didn't you speak to uh, McGee? Oh, I spoke to McGee as recently as two days ago. He's still alive. I also spoke, and I think a much more important person for me, was the chairman of CORE in East Feliciana Parish, a man named Corey Collins. And this is a person who was a Vietnam veteran who was not given the right to vote. And Henry Earl Palmer told Corey Collins, well, you fail. Well, why did he fail? Because he answered all the questions on the exam correctly, and you only had to answer, I think, six out of the ten. And uh, so he failed for that. And, he came, and then there was a period of time that elapsed before you could go back and register again. And Corey Collins went back and, of course, registered to vote. One of the things that I found out about uh, the stereotypes that we have about the South, you know, have to be adjusted a little bit. Corey Collins was so courageous that he stood up to the Klan at every chance. And he knew where they met. They used to meet at a TV repair shop. And he'd go in there when he saw all the cars outside, so he knew the Klan was meeting, and he'd go in there just to show that he knew that that they that they should know that he knew that the Klan was meeting. And he he was extremely courageous, extremely forceful. And Corey Collins was one of the people who came down to New Orleans in February of 1969 to testify at the trial of Clay Shaw, and, and to show that Clay Shaw certainly had lied when he said that he didn't know. Uh, Oswald or Ferry, more to the point Oswald, because uh, Corey Collins was one of what was called, were called the Clinton witnesses. And what Corey Collins told me, and he never told Jim Garrison, Corey Collins worked for the post office in Baton Rouge at the time of Garrison's investigation, and as a result of his testifying for Jim Garrison, Corey Collins was fired by the United States Post Office. They had written to him on saying he had to be in, at work on Saturday morning when they knew he couldn't possibly get back up there in time to be at work, and 
day was fired and he never told Garrison and I said well why didn't you tell Garrison and he was just so stoical and he didn't want to bother Garrison with the fact that he'd been fired from his job because he testified at the trial of Clay Shaw and the, the, one of the great sadnesses for me was that Corey Collins died a year ago this month in October and so would not ever read the book and I call him an unsung hero which is the title of chapter 14 and uh, Corey Collins faced down lynch mobs and one time they they removed somebody for from a jail they were going to lynch somebody and he's just he got there and he said by the time I get there he better be back in jail they better leave him where he was and they did and it later when uh, some of Clay Shaw's friends went up there and tried to intimidate Corey Collins father he exposed them and he knew as liars because they said that a deputy sheriff had pointed out the Collins house and Corey Collins said, well, the deputy sheriff knew, and of course this is a racist who's used words that we won't use on WBAI today, but he said he knew that uh, he had, uh, Corey Collins had told all the so-called law enforcement up there, bother me, not him, referring to his father. And I think that Emmett Collins, it was Corey Collins' father, died the previous June, and Corey Collins was on dialysis throughout the time that I knew him, and he stayed alive through that summer after his father died, and then he, he died himself, as I said, in October. We should remind people the CORE is the Congress of Racial Equality, and at the time of which Joan is speaking, there were tests in the South. You had to pass a voter registration test before you could register. This was one of the great struggles to eliminate the tests and allow people to register as citizens of the United States. But I think it's important to emphasize here that what emerges in the identifying of, of Oswald and Clinton and his presence there with Clay Shaw and with David Ferry is that they were running Oswald up there to take him into the mental hospital and to create the paper trail for the later uh, setting up of Oswald as Patsy. And that the significance of this is that, as Joan elucidates in her book, they were preparing the cover story even before the execution of Kennedy himself. And it, well, that's that, extremely important, Ralph, because it shows that if the cover-up began before the crime, then you can certainly say that the same people who did the cover-up also did the crime. And many people have tried to say, well, it's so obvious that the CIA covered up what happened in the assassination, but is it clear that they were involved in the crime? And, of course, here we see the two processes being identical. The witnesses that established that, I mean, let's just take James Wilcox who was with Oswald at Itsugi Air Force Base and was with the Central Intelligence Agency, and whose own testimony about Oswald's role and the role of the Central Intelligence Agency and the role that was assigned to Oswald as the fake Marxist, the Fidelista, who was the presumptive assassin that would facilitate the invasion of Cuba in the aftermath of the Kennedy execution. I wanted to correct one small point regarding the component of the CIA that was involved in the assassination. And I think it's the people that seem to be involved here. First of all, of course, the legal offices of the CIA and Lawrence Houston are, are present throughout this. But primarily it was the clandestine service and not, I would say, the several other components. For example, people in the Soviet realities section, which should have been notified about Oswald's presence in the Soviet Union and were not, were not informed. And I think even one might question whether the clandestine service, which at that time was led by Richard Helms, he was deputy director for plans, and plans meant 
dirty operations or the clandestine service. It's not even clear whether John McCone, who was director of Central Intelligence at the time, was informed. And I think we know the phrase now, plausible deniability, that it would be, I think they thought, much better that he not know. And I think Helms pretty much admitted when he testified before the church committee that there was a great deal of information that they never shared with John McCone precisely so that he could say that he didn't know about this or that and that he he just he really didn't know and that he would be telling the truth. And I think it's very likely that the same was true for the Kennedy assassination itself. Well, now, Joan, let's talk for a moment about the revelations that occurred in the Italian newspaper uh, Paese Sera, which had been carrying out an investigation in Italy uh, during the uh, late 60s into the Central Intelligence Agency role in Italy in uh, preparing the potential military putsch uh, in Italy that did in fact occur in Greece, and in what was later disclosed to be something called Operation Gladio, the 40-year subversion of the political process in Italy and, and staging operations. One of the things that emerged from that series of investigative reports in Paese Sera was the proprietary company Centro Mondiale Commerciale, World Trademark, with a figure named Clay Shaw, and another operation of the Central Intelligence Agency called Permanent Industrial Expositions, or Permindex. As you know, I sent those materials to Jim Garrison at the time, and you and I had occasion to interview the editors and the participants in that study a couple of years ago. Yeah, I wanted to make that point. You made it for me, but I was going to make that point, that Jim Garrison didn't have the CIA files that we, of Clay Shaw that we have today. But through Ralph's efforts, Ralph was in London at the time working on the Who Killed Kennedy Committee and also was executive director of the Bertrand Russell Peace Foundation. And at that time, Ralph became friendly with the Italian correspondent from Paese Sera to London named Giorgio Fanti. And through Fanti, Ralph received the series of articles that appeared in Paese Sera, which had to do with the role of the CIA in electoral politics in several countries, particularly France and Italy, after the war. And what should be dis written and to the surprise of the Paese Sera editors was that on the board of Permindex, which was the main organization, and then that CMC in Rome was Clay Shaw. And so it had been difficult to prove, number one, that the CMC and Permindex were CIA projects, but also that Clay Shaw was enlisted by the heads of those organizations to be on the board of directors, which would be an American Central Intelligence Agency asset endorsing those activities in Europe. One of the documents that I received shows, it's a CIA document from 1948, and it showed that Ferenc Nagy, who was one of the leaders of Permindex, was and had been CIA asset since the early days of the CIA, since its inception, really, in 1947 and in 1948. Well, aren't we talking as well here with the involvement of Guy Bannister and in the activities of Herman Dex and of Clay Shaw and the Central Mondial Commercial, not only what led to the assassination of Kennedy, but an elaborate plan to support the fascists in France who were involved in the OAS in Algeria, Jacques Soustel, and the planned assassination of Charles de Gaulle. 
That's right. When the CIA could not influence the elections in these European countries through spending money and giving money to the political parties whom the CIA wanted to support, they supported assassination attempts. And as you say, Ralph, uh, against de Gaulle, and certainly they were very big supporters of the OAS, which are this fascist torture organization which you can see trying to prevent the liberation of Algeria from France and that you see in Gila Ponte Corvo's film The Battle of Algiers. We're speaking with author Joan Mellon and we're discussing her soon to be released book A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's Assassination and the Case that Should Have Changed History. This is a book that will change history because it elucidates and it uncovered new information that confirms without a doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald was not a loner, but a government agent who worked for the CIA, the New Orleans FBI office, and U.S. Customs, that he worked closely and connected to the CIA-sponsored anti-Castro figures in New Orleans, including Clay Shaw, of whom we've been speaking, David Ferry, and a Cuban associate of Shaw's at the International Trademark named Juan Valdez, Clay Shaw and David Ferry, both garrison suspects and CIA operatives, implemented the assassination. They helped frame Oswald as the murderer. Let me point out that Joan, over a period of nearly eight years, interviewed a thousand people. One thousand people. She ferreted out every last associate of the people involved in the execution of Kennedy. She not only did that, but Tens of thousands of documents were searched and perused and documents that produced snippets of information in each document, each of them explosive. This is integrated now in a seamless this depiction of the unfolding of this execution and its instruction from the highest levels. Joan, talk a moment about Maurice Bishop and Lee Harvey Oswald and who is Maurice Bishop. Joan, talk a moment about Maurice Bishop and Lee Harvey Oswald, and who is Maurice Bishop? Maurice Bishop is the name, one of the aliases that David Atlee Phillips took, and it was an unusual moment when one of the leaders of the Cuban exile anti-Castro movement, Antonio Vesiana, testified, or rather I shouldn't say that he testified, but he revealed to the Miami investigator Gaten Fonzi that he had seen his own handler Bishop which was Phillips talking to Lee Harvey Oswald and it was a rare moment that uh, but then we also have evidence that David Atlee Phillips was seen at the training camps north of Lake Pontchartrain with David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald and others so I wanted to get back though Ralph to one other point about Jim Garrison and the Italian newspaper Paese Sera and that is that in the last five years, there have been renewed attacks on Jim Garrison. And one of those attacks has said that the only reason that Garrison charged the CIA with having been responsible for the murder of President Kennedy was that he read about this in Paese Serra. And the Paese Serra was blaming the CIA for its interference in European politics only as a result of disinformation sent by the KGB. 
And one of the things that I had to do then was to go to the surviving editors of Paese Sera and ask them whether it was in fact true that they were targeting the CIA only as a result of the instruction of the KGB. And one of the people I found was a man named Gianfranco Corsini, who was in absolutely indignant that the KGB could have influenced this newspaper, and I like what he said to me. We have no reason to trust new CIA documents any more than old KGB documents. And he said that he hoped for the demise of both the CIA and the KGB. Well, that's prescient, isn't it? Because the CIA today is not what it was in John F. Kennedy's time. Well, I should mention in regard to that, this is Max Holland, who is on the editorial board of the nation, but is what we call a CIA writer. He actually writes for the CIA website, and it's Holland who has fabricated this ridiculous claim that Paisi Serra was a vehicle for the KGB. The irony of it all is that Paisi Serra, which is a newspaper of the independent left that was not tied to the Italian Communist Party, and so what if it had been? But Paisi Serra is rather analogous to the nation itself, ironically enough. But it was Sartre wrote for for Paisi Serra, Simone de Beauvoir. It was a vehicle of the independent and left intelligentsia across Europe and the United States. It was a daily newspaper with a, with a very substantial following. And this investigative report was concerned with the role of the CIA in Italy. It's only quite fortuitously that they stumbled upon the presence of figures like Clay Shaw on the board of directors of these proprietary central intelligence agency companies uh, that were in Italy. We're speaking with Joan Mellon, author of this remarkable investigative work, A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's assassination, and the case that should have changed history. One thing you tracked down to talk about Clay Shaw is that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Shaw denied that he ever knew David Ferry. And in your book, you mention that Ferry, in order to rent the plane to go to Dallas, that he actually took out a loan, and it was co-signed by Clay Shaw. Maya, that was one of the biggest discoveries that I made, and I made it because, I don't know how, well, I do, now looking back, there was a retired police officer who was the founder of, I think, the policeman's union named Irv Magri. And he said, you have to talk to this former policeman from Kenner because he knows something. And it turned out that this former policeman from Kenner knew a loan officer named Herb Wagner, who had also been with the Civil Air Patrol, knew Ferry very, very well, and also flew missions for the CIA. And one day during Garrison's investigation, Herb Wagner was sitting in his office late at night with this police officer, and he said, I have something, and I wonder whether I should tell Jim Garrison. And he opens up a file drawer at the bottom of the way in the back. He reaches into this file drawer, and he pulls out a loan application. And here's David Ferry, only several weeks before the assassination, applying for a loan and when Wagner who was called Von Wagner by everyone very dramatic and he would not give Ferry the loan and there's Clay Shaw's signature as the co-signer showing not only that the two knew each other but that they were collaborating on this flight that Ferry took to Dallas two weeks or maybe even one week before the assassination now I want to add here a fact and that is that when David Ferry was interviewed by the FBI and the Secret Service right after the assassination he said that he hadn't been in Dallas between eight in 10 years. 
So he obvious lie. Of course, Ferry was never interviewed by the Warren Commission, or well, he was dead by the time of the House Select Committee investigation. But that loan document, I tried to find the actual document because wouldn't that be wonderful to have it? And Wagner had died, and all of his files were put in garbage bags, and his wife diligently threw them all away. And so I asked his daughter to go through her garage, see if possibly that file could have survived, but I have to say that it didn't. So I do have the testimony of the police officer and of his daughter, certainly of his daughter, as to his CIA connections. Now, we're talking here about a relationship between Clay Shaw and David Ferry, who was a contract pilot for the Central Intelligence Agency as well as for Carlos Marcello of the mob, and a contract pilot who, who flew operations of sabotage and of uh, carrying agents in and out of Cuba to attack Cuba. I want to stop you for one second, Ralph. And David Ferry was not really Carlos Marcello's pilot. David Ferry worked for G. Ray Gill, who was the lawyer of Carlos Marcello. And Gill had represented Ferry when Ferry was fired from his job as a pilot for Eastern Airlines and... Ferry couldn't pay Gill. So as a favor to Gill, Ferry flew Carlos Marcello. He flew him back from Guatemala to the United States. He got a passport for Marcello and taped it to his chest and all of this. But it's very misleading to try to draw particular mafia connections between David Ferry and Carlos Marcello. That wasn't the case. One of the things that I discover in the book, and I think this is extremely important, is where the story originated that the mafia had been involved in the planning of the assassination of President Kennedy because that was the second line of defense. It was certainly the second line of defense for the House Select Committee once they received acoustic evidence that showed that there were more than three shots fired in Dealey Plaza. That made it impossible for Oswald to have been the single assassin. So if it were a conspiracy, which is more than two people involved, then the House Select Committee Chief Counsel, Robert Blakey, put forth the view, well, it had to be the mafia. That view that the mafia was involved in planning the assassination was a brainstorm of J. Edgar Hoover's and the FBI. And I think in the book I show exactly how that happened. The other side of that was to blame Garrison for supporting the mafia. That was the other way of discrediting Garrison. Hoover also thought of that. And he thought a good way to discredit Garrison would be to that he protected Carlos Marcello. Now, Carlos Marcello operated out of Jeff, out of Jefferson Parish, not out of Orleans Parish. It didn't make any difference. If enough reporters would write it, if enough people would say it, it could be true. Hoover was a master. And so even as recently as when I did my own investigation, people would say to me that Garrison protected Carlos Marcello. It certainly wasn't true. Now, everybody knows everyone in New Orleans or knew everyone. And certainly Garrison knew Marcello, partly because one of Marcello's many lawyers was Russell Sharnikas, with whom Garrison practiced law, if you could call it that, because Garrison never liked to practice law. And after he lost his job as district attorney, he would occasionally go into the office and Mostly he provided referrals. And so Marcello appeared at that office now and then, and everybody knew everyone. Even my own doctor here in New York City at Mount Sinai Hospital, who was in studying medicine at Tulane University, 
during the, these days, once uh, told me that he'd ran into Carlos Marcelo at a funeral, that he was standing at the back at this funeral chatting with a man. And when he sat down with this Dr. Carmel Cohn, one of the great doctors of the universe, and one of his friends said, do you know who you were talking to back there? That was Carlos Marcelo. So if the gynecologist from Mount Sinai Hospital knew Carlos Marcelo or was seen talking to him, you can be sure everybody in, in Orleans Parish did too. Oh. But Garrison did not help the mafia. And when... Robert Blakey and his deputy Gary Cornwell tried to connect the mafia to the assassination. I should say that even Aaron Cohn, one of Garrison's bitterest enemies, the head of the Metropolitan Crime Commission, had defended the FBI and said they did not protect the mafia. The mafia had nothing to do with it, and Oswald's family weren't even so much involved with the mafia as Blakey and his co-author Richard Billings would have you believe. Well, let's go into some of the means that were used, uh, like you've been talking about now, but the means to discredit the Garrison investigation and Garrison personally. One of your remarkable chapters in the book, I mean, every chapter is remarkable, but one I particularly found so dramatic and engaging was Chapter 12, White Paper, where you talk about Justice Department lawyer Walter Sheridan and how at Bobby Kennedy's request, Sheridan orchestrated an NBC white paper and also the penetration of Garrison's office. Before we talk about Walter Sheridan, we have to say who Walter Sheridan was. He was part of the National Security Agency, cleared for the CIA, cleared for the FBI. So he represented many agencies before he went to work primarily for Robert Kennedy at the Justice Department. And what Walter Sheridan's big project was, was not, first it was not Jim Garrison, it was to destroy Jimmy Hoffa. And he and I, three remarkable articles appeared by Fred Cook in the Nation magazine, which exposed exactly what Sheridan did. He used his three favorite methods, wiretapping, blackmail, and bribery, and he managed to get Hoffa convicted. He lied, he cheated, he did everything, and he was the head of what was called Robert Kennedy's wiretapping unit. And Sheridan succeeded. Hoffa was convicted. And the coda to that story is so appalled was Chief Justice Earl Warren that he dissent when, when the Hoffa conviction came up before the United States Supreme Court for review, Earl Warren dissented and wanted to let Hoffa go because of the methods that Walter Sheridan used. He was an absolute thug. He was a criminal himself. Now, he's finished with Hoffa. What does he do? He's sent down to New Orleans to destroy Jim Garrison. Before he gets there, he establishes credentials. He's suddenly a producer for NBC television. He had produced one other thing in Detroit in order to pave the way. And the CIA assets down there, such as Hugh Ainsworth, who was working for Newsweek magazine at the time, Ainsworth wrote an article about Sheridan in which he mentioned Sheridan as a reporter and as a news producer four times in the space of a one-page article. Okay, here comes Sheridan. He comes down to New Orleans and pretends to be investigating the Kennedy assassination. And what he's doing is is destroying the garrison investigation. And the product would be this white paper, which did in fact appear on NBC. What Sheridan tried to do, and he failed to do, the one thing he failed to do was to destroy Garrison's chief witness, whom we talked about earlier, Perry Russo. And he tried to bribe Russo, and he tried to tell Russo, I'll get you a job in Los Angeles. Where would you like to go? California. All you have to do is to say that everything that you told Jim Garrison was a lie. Well, this is extremely interesting because the Shaw defense went to great lengths to discredit Perry Russo. Russo. It could only be because they believed that, ex that he, what he said was, was true. And Russo had testified 
at a preliminary hearing. Now, Garrison had called a preliminary hearing on the evidence, which he didn't have to do. Usually it's the defense that calls a preliminary hearing, but Garrison wanted to show what his evidence was. And I should mention for the people who are legal-minded that at the time in the state of Louisiana, the prosecution did not have to give its witness list to the defense. So here's Garrison exposing his chief witness, Perry Russo, to the public and gave uh, the other side a chance for two years to attempt to destroy him. And that was what Walter Sheridan went to New Orleans to do. Well, this shows the collaboration of NBC, the network itself, with Attorney General Robert Kennedy and the FBI to prevent the real investigation of the Kennedy assassination. Well, more than that, to uh, destroy the witnesses, to threaten them, uh, to threaten them with death, to threaten them with uh, prison, to blackmail them, to bribe them, to use any method possible. Well, Urso was a very courageous young fellow. He worked for an insurance company. He was quite a character. And he immediately went into Garrison's office and signed an affidavit. Garrison knew that Sheridan and James Phelan, who was another media asset who was reporting to the FBI and the CIA, he, Garrison knew that these people were getting at Russo. And so what happened... Uh, Maybe Garrison was wrong to do this, but he wired Russo so that everything that happened there was on tape. So as a result of that, I have the tapes of Sheridan's attempts to, and Phelan's attempts to subvert Perry Russo. Perry Russo was strong. Perry Russo did not cave in. He, did, he In fact, he went to the district attorney's office and signed an affidavit against Sheridan. Garrison then indicted Sheridan. Now, being the state of Louisiana in 1967 and 1968, there was no law against obstruction of justice. So Garrison charged Walter Sheridan with various charges, bribery and so forth. And, of course, uh, Sheridan was protected by the federal courts and never went to trial. You have to summarize what is it that Russo actually had witnessed, where was he present, what was he testifying to, and what was it significant? No, I, we talked about that a little earlier. What Russo testified to was that meeting at David Ferry's apartment when Clay Shaw, who went under the name of Clem Bertrand, and David Ferry discussed the assassination, how President Kennedy would be killed, and what their alibis would be. Now, I should, at this point, for people who don't remember the Garrison case, talk about what that name Clem or Clay Bertrand meant. And this is also, this is, of course, part of the record and even part of the Warren Commission. And that is, on the Saturday after President Kennedy was shot, a New Orleans lawyer, also another mob lawyer named Dean Andrews, was in Hotel Dieu Hospital recovering from pneumonia when he received a telephone call from someone named Clay Bertrand, whom he knew, asking him to go to Dallas to represent Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, Andrews was too sick to go, so he, and this is corroborated, he called a fellow lawyer named Monk Zeldin, and he asked him to go in his place, go to Dallas and represent Lee Harvey Oswald. And as they were talking in a second conversation on Sunday morning, Zeldin said, nobody has to go to Dallas, your boy just got shot. And there's uh, Jack Ruby had killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, when the, the Warren Commission did talk to Dean Andrews, he never identified Clay Bertrand. And of course, what Garrison, who knew, everyone knew everyone, of course, Garrison knew Dean Andrews. So the first official interview that Garrison did when he resumed his investigation in 1966 was to have lunch with Dean Andrews and to try to get the identification who was Clay Bertrand, who was this Bertrand. And at this gathering that we were talking about at which Perry Russo was present, Clay Shaw, who was Clay Bertrand, and I prove that up and down, although it has been difficult for Garrison to prove, but I prove it, I think, further. 
Clay Shaw went under the name Clem Bertrand. Now, it turns out through various research that I did that that name that Clay Shaw used was the alias that he chose as when he was helping fellow homosexuals in New Orleans when they were arrested against these uh, what were called in those days crimes against nature. And the irony of that is, of course, that Garrison was was a liberal. I want to mention that Garrison was a liberal. He did not want to prosecute anybody. Ferry was prosecuted, by the way, in Jefferson Parish, not in Orleans Parish. He didn't want to prosecute anybody for these victimless crimes. He really didn't care about what people's sexual preferences were. And despite what Jack Anderson wrote in one of his columns, during the trial of Clay Shaw, Garrison never once called a witness who in any way could reveal what Clay Shaw's sexual practices were. I do that in the book, but certainly Garrison never used that. And as a result, Garrison lost many witnesses who could have testified to the fact that Clay Shaw was indeed the Clay Bertrand who telephoned Dean Andrews to ask him to go to Dallas and represent Lee Harvey Oswald. But also, Sheridan didn't limit himself to trying to get at Perry Russo. He also enlisted Gordon Novell to penetrate Garrison's office. And could you talk? About that's that's interesting. Gordon Novell is remains a New Orleans character, and I think you read a recent issue of Vanity Fair. There's a long discussion of Gordon Novell, who's saying that he was an advisor to Michael Jackson in his recent trial. So Gordon Novell is one of the a New Orleans character who was available, who was an FBI informant, and whom Sheridan used, as Maya says, to penetrate Garrison's office, to steal documents, to steal lie detector testimonies to photographs, whatever he could get his hands on. So simultaneously, Gordon Novell was reporting to Walter Sheridan, and he was also reporting every day, really, to the FBI. And thanks to the Oliver Stone and to the JFK Act, we have all of those reports from Gordon Novell to the FBI that are available to everyone in the National Archives. One of the things that Gordon Novell did for Walter Sheridan was put him on to Marlene Mancuso, who was Gordon Novell's ex-wife and who was a garrison witness. And, and then Walter Sheridan tried to subvert Marlene Mancuso also, offering her a job on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. She was quite beautiful. She had been a Miss New Orleans. And Walter Sheridan promised that he could get her a job on The Tonight Show if she would take back the testimony that she had given for Jim Garrison. And, and what was that testimony? That testimony had to do with the robbery of the Schlumberger ammunitions dump out in Houma, Louisiana, which was masterminded by Guy Bannister, by Gordon Novell, possibly with David Phillips' authorization, the same David Phillips that Ralph was referring to as Maurice Bishop. And they, they stole all these uh, grenades and various war material, which they then trucked into New Orleans, ultimately bound for Miami and for the efforts against Fidel Castro. Uh, Joan, David Atlee Phillips was the head of station for Latin America and in particular for Mexico of the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, chief of operations for Western Hemisphere, working very closely with um, J.M. Wave, the CIA station in Miami. He wasn't actually chief of station in Mexico City, but that was under his jurisdiction. And David Atlee Phillips is a central and coordinating figure with respect to the key participants in the execution of John Kennedy. Certainly David Atlee Phillips was involved. And he wrote his memoirs. It's called The Amlash Legacy, and it's in the form of a novel. And his wife has kept that undercover, but 
an assassination researcher managed to look at some of it during depositions in a lawsuit. And so we see that David Atlee Phillips depicts himself as Lee Harvey Oswald's handler in his fictionalized version of the Kennedy assassination. Well, in fact, that fictionalized version of the Kennedy assassination by David Atlee Phillips actually elaborates the entire scenario of setting up a uh, Fidelista as the fall guy for the assassination and then carrying it out as a government operation. That's right. The CIA's original plan was to blame Fidel Castro for the assassination and that this would precipitate an invasion of Cuba, which was what the CIA and the Pentagon at that time wanted and which John F. Kennedy did not want. 9-11 9-11 of the day. Well, the the Vietnam, I mean, in a way, because what happened was that although they did not get there after the death of President Kennedy, they did not get their war in Cuba. They got something even better, which was the protracted war in Vietnam, because so many more profits accumulated to the oil people, the helicopter people, and uh, the Western interests that profited so much from the Vietnam War. And we see these same people profiting, of course, from the... Iraq War. One of the interesting things that Garrison wanted to do was to really investigate George Brown and to look at Brown and Root and to see, and he discovered their CIA connections. The documents were not available to Garrison, although they are to us. And so Garrison focused on Brown and Root, and here is Kellogg, Brown and Root at the forefront of the, I don't know, is it billions of dollars that they have made uh, from the contracts uh, in Iraq? Right. We had discussed the evolution, development of Brown and Root in our crony capitalism series, and Brown is very much connected with Lyndon Baines Johnson. And it was Lyndon Baines Johnson, even when he was in Congress, that got Franklin Delano Roosevelt to award to Brown the original road building and then also dam building monies. And then later it was Brown who promoted Lyndon Baines Johnson in his congressional campaign. There's very close connection. So um I just before we go any further, I want to make a point that I do not subscribe to the view that Lyndon Johnson was involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. What was interesting to me is that you're saying that Garrison wanted to look further into the role of Kellogg Brown and then it was Kellogg Brown later it became Brown and Root. I think Brown at the time Root. it was Brown. Uh, the it was do- Brown and Root, and then later became Kellogg Brown and Root, and then they were part of Halliburton much, much later. Joan, you discuss a CIA accountant with top secret clearance named James Wilcott, who I mentioned before had been with Oswald at Itsugi, retired in 1966. There's an extraordinary passage here where you cite Wilcott as follows. Oswald received a full-time salary for operational work. There were at least six or seven people who knew and believed Oswald to be an agent of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he concludes, Ruby was paid by the CIA to do away with Oswald. The plan was to kill Kennedy, link Oswald to Castro, and use the pretext to invade Cuba. I think that's all correct. I think that Wilcock was, the House Select Committee attempted to discredit him, attempted to show, well, he couldn't be right because the person he cites was no longer there at the time and so forth. It's pretty lame. I think he was telling the truth. I think he, because people often say, how come there are no loose ends? How come nobody came forward? How come no one said anything? And the fact is that isn't true. People have said things. There have been loose ends. And that was just an unfortunate for them fact. This man did not testify for Jim Garrison, although I think he would have wanted to. Well, after all, Joan, 
disclosed that Jim Garrison was going to indict David Ferry. He was found dead. At the same time, Eladio Del Valle came up with a severe case of hatchet in the head in Miami, in Key Biscayne. Mary Sherman is found dead. Uh, how many witnesses, uh, people who had come forward or had guilty knowledge, were silenced and eliminated and disappeared and murdered in the course of this process? Well, I think certainly the witnesses were afraid. And only last week when I was talking to the barber, Liam McGee, who gave Oswald the haircut, he said, you know, I found the new witness. I found somebody who was interviewed by the FBI right after the assassination and he was interviewed with a woman named Gladys Palmer who was really should have been one of the Clinton witnesses she had been a stripper for Jack Ruby at the Carousel Club and she was seen with Oswald quite frequently during the spring and summer of 1963 and the FBI had thought that this man and Gladys Palmer were quote unquote boyfriend and girlfriend and they were they were taken in to the jailhouse at St. Francisville and questioned by the FBI and I said oh I'd really like to talk to this man and the barber said well he's terrified he's still terrified to this day give the example of Rose Jeremy and then there's Rose Jeremy well Rose Jeremy of course was not afraid and she was at the east at the East Louisiana State Hospital at Jackson during the day of the Kennedy assassination and was predicted the assassination and talked to some Cubans who were with her and so she knew that the assassination was coming and before she could be a garrison witness she was murdered in 1965 walking on some a deserted highway in Big Sandy Texas what was she who would hitchhike on a deserted road instead of a main road and she was hit by a car and died she also said, after all, she wrote Jeremy, that she was a stripper or a hooker for, for Ruby, and, and then she witnessed Ruby and Oswald together yes. frequently at the Carousel Club. That was one of the, uh, she was one of the witnesses who could show that Ruby and Oswald knew each other. There have been quite a few. The book, my book is chock-filled with witnesses who saw Oswald and Ruby together at the Carousel Club and elsewhere. We're speaking with author Joan Mellon, investigative author, of a farewell to justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's assassination, and the case that should have changed history. Joan is decades friend and companion, and we know the methodical way in which he approaches every one of the subjects for which he has written books and analysis and and in the way she approaches life. And what I'm talking about here, brothers and sisters, is a profile in courage. You hear a quiet-spoken Fatigable author, investigator, researcher, professor, who has personally, physically been present with the killers, the contract killers, the plug uglies and the thugs, the actual assassins, sat with them, met with their families, pressed them, pushed them, extracted information from them, extraordinary documentation, first-hand witnesses that people paled before the prospect of even contacting. There was Joan traveling on her own for almost eight years from place to place, meeting these people and gaining their confidence and convincing them of the necessity at this point in time to come forward. And she has obtained their data. She has obtained their verification. She has contained, if you like, their firsthand accounts. It is an, a, just a breathtaking achievement. And as you read it, you will be astonished at the audacity the courage and the perseverance that has produced this extraordinary work. We have so much more to discuss in terms of the interviews and particularly the role of Robert Kennedy in sabotaging the investigation, why he would do such a thing, why would he sabotage the investigation of his 
own brothers, his close the um, brother to whom he was very close in the assassination, and what this means. We're also going to discuss later on in the show the role of the top echelon of the CIA and the involvement of Richard Helms and James Angleton and others in this assassination. Our brothers and sisters, point man for the murder of Patrice Lumumba was a man named Frank Carlucci. The head of the Carlisle Group is a man named Frank Carlucci, a key figure in the Central Intelligence Agency operation that entailed the assassination of John F. Kennedy, a man named Frank Carlucci, a key collaborator of Bush Sr. and Bush Jr., a man named Frank Carlucci. It all comes together here, the murder state, the criminalization of the state, the execution of the head of state, the treason at the top, the detail, the particularity, the eliciting of the witnesses, the establishment of the documents, and the connections, connecting the dots, bringing it all together. A Farewell to Justice by Joan Mellon. You have to have it, brothers and sisters, because it illuminates decades of the decomposition of what passes for the state in this country. Uh, you were talking about Rose Jeremy, and then here on page 206 it says, Back in New Orleans, Garrison uncovered Rose's 20 aliases. Her name appeared everywhere, but in the Warren Commission index of names. The state police had not taken her photograph or prints. And then you have a person named Fruge. I don't remember. Francis Fruge. Francis Fruge was right. a state trooper who was who ultimately, with Mrs. Dishler, became the investigators for Jim Garrison up at Clinton and Jackson. And Fruge enters the story here because he was a state policeman in charge of narcotics, and so he knew Rose Sheremy very well because she plied her trade, prostitution, drugs, on Route 190 down there from Opelousas to the border of Texas. Texas and Beaumont, which, again, names that we know because of the recent catastrophes down there. And so when Rose was thrown out of a car, this is the time number one, and she's dazed, she's on drugs, and Francis Fruge is called. That's where the story starts as far as Rose Sheremy is concerned. And Francis Fruge is told to take her to East, to the East Louisiana State Hospital. And while Rose is with him, she's talking and talking, and she's telling how Oswald and Ruby knew each other and how the assassination was planned and how she was with the Cubans. And so Francis Fruge enters the story at that time. And it says here that her death certificate reads, quote, bullet in the head, although hospital records mention no bullet hole. I don't know about that, and Garrison could never find it. The motorist who supposedly ran Rose over was not at the address that he gave, and Garrison had no way of investigating there. I want to say something else about Garrison, and that is how short-staffed he was. He only had a few people, three or four people, working on this case. He had very little money. He had to borrow money from the Volkswagen dealer down there. He had a small group called Truth and Consequences, and for a while they gave $100 a month for his investigation, and then they stopped after a few months. He really was working on a shoestring, and so there were a lot of areas that he couldn't investigate, and I think the death of Rose Sheremy was one. Another was Paese Serra and all the information that they had given about the CIA's role in European politics. Garrison just did not have the resources to follow up on these aspects of the case. And Joan, many of his witnesses who he nailed, and they were key and central witnesses, they simply went into other states and then the governors refused to extradite them. Would you well, that's true, and I think we have to realize it was Walter Sheridan 
on behalf of the Department of Justice who telephoned the governors of those states where the witnesses were and ordered them not to extradite. It was true in Ohio in the case of Gordon Novell. Gordon Novell had been charged as a material witness by Garrison. He wanted him to talk to the grand jury, and the governor of Ohio just refused to extradite Novell. The same was true of a woman named Sandra Moffitt, who had been Perry Russo's companion at the party that I referred to, where David Ferry and Clay Shaw were. And not a single witness was extradited by any state back to New Orleans to help Jim Garrison. You know, it puts me in mind of the time when we formed the Who Killed Kennedy Committee in London. That is the moment when the established media became absolutely rapid. The Guardian at the time published an editorial in which they said that I was a pathological American who uh, had a psychopathic loathing for the country in which he had been bred. They didn't say spawned. And I remember, John, when we were seeing Jim in 1969, I was joking with Jim about the, the kinds of attacks to which we had each been subjected over the years. And as Jim was so clear about this, you know, if they, can't, if they don't off you, it's character assassination. Jim was subjected to the most relentless reinvention, character assassination. Even the vindication in a court of law wasn't sufficient when this fabrication about his taking bribes from pinbill machine operators, which was a Justice Department plot against Garrison, was exposed. The New York Times to this day continues to write as if he had been convicted of this. And Jim used to say the following. He says, you tell it all as soon as you know it. Because there is no other immunity from the fate of so many of these witnesses, because the more you make noise about what we know, and that's what free speech radio is about, brothers and sisters, what, that's what taking aim is for. You tell it all as soon as you know it. You get it out there. You mobilize people around this understanding and this truth. So that the consequence of doing us in, to put it bluntly, is that you call attention to the information that you've been disseminating. They can only attempt to assail us and destroy our characters that they did relentlessly to Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison was the man who was going to be governor of Louisiana. In fact, he had uh, he had been marked by as a as a coming figure in Democratic Party politics. He may well have been considered as a vice presidential candidate or beyond. His political career he cared less about. He sacrificed every prospect to his dedication to unfolding this truth and to exposing what he called the war complex. He said, what was the phrase that he used, Joan? Well, he used to say the war machine. Yes, but I meant in terms of let justice be done. Oh, that's written on his grave. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. It's, and his children put that on his tombstone. I hope the grave is intact over there in the cemetery in Metairie. When we sent out notices about today's special, the three-hour special, people then forwarded onto other lists. And someone called us, in fact, our webmaster, Mark Bilk, our archivist, Mark Bilk, called and said that on one of the lists, somebody had sent back a notice say, no, Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin at this day and age. Well, I recommend that this person must read this book because it shows clearly who Lee Harvey Oswald was and his relationship to Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and Juan Valdez.
Thank you for listening to episode 170 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.